Gun violence is a topic we hear about in the news seemingly on a daily basis, and yet depending on who you listen to, you can get very conflicting information about how big of a problem gun violence is in America and what the best approaches are for dealing with this problem. And given that the right to bear arms is written into the U.S. Constitution, it's a topic that is difficult for many of us to talk about and one in which our personal feelings on the issue often cloud the actual data and the scope of the problem and the most effective approaches for reducing gun violence. I'm your host, Matt Fox, from the Boston University School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, we're going to be talking about gun violence, and to do so, I am joined by Dr. Arjit Nandi from McGill University. Welcome to the Epidemiology Counts, Ari. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Nice to join you. And we also have a guest with us today who is an expert on the issue of gun violence. Ari, can you introduce our guest? Sure. Uh, thanks for the pleasure of uh, introducing our guest today, Dr. David Hemingway, who is a professor of health policy and the director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center at their School of Public Health. Uh, he's an expert on the subject of uh, gun violence in America, and he's spoken and written extensively, uh, written extensively on the subject, including the book uh, Private Guns, Public Health. Uh, David, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So um, I guess we can get right into it and set the stage. Um, David, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about trends in gun ownership and gun violence in the United States. Um, we hear all the time that there's an epidemic of gun violence in the United States. Is that truly what the data supports? Um, has this kind of trend increased over time in the US? Uh, and how do we really compare it to other, other countries? So uh, I would say we don't really have an epidemic of gun violence. Uh, what we have is an endemic problem about gun violence. Uh, uh, on an average day in the United States, uh, uh, about 300 or more people are shot uh, and more than 100 die. Uh, the trends uh, in terms of uh, suicide and in terms of uh, homicide really follow um, uh, what's going on in crime. So uh, we had uh, a big spike uh, in the late 80s, early 90s when crime spiked in terms of uh, gun homicide and then it fell uh, dramatically and, uh, and it just picked up a little. Uh, but overall, like gun homicide is probably at rates they were seeing in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Uh, where you see the big um, change uh, is in uh, public mass shootings, uh, where uh, not, not including domestic violence shootings where everyone knows everybody, uh, but in these sort of uh, shootings where people are killing, randomly killing strangers uh, for no apparent reason. Uh, and, and that seems to be very contagious. Uh, the same way certain things in the gun area are very, seem to be very contagious. Uh, street crime uh, is somewhat contagious because you have retaliation, but most of the other gun issues, uh, gun accidents aren't really contagious. Most of gun suicide is not contagious. That, that's really interesting because I, I think that most people probably get the impression that actually uh, gun violence is on the increase. And it sounds like what you're saying is that, um, you know, where the actual numbers are may, may be varying from time to time, but that overall the number of uh, or the amount of gun violence is actually um, at levels much lower than they used to be in, as you say, the 70s or 80s. Yes. So um, most people, when you ask them, has crime increased over the past year, they always say yes. And this was this occurred from the early 90s 
through 2015 when crime was really decreasing and, and, gun, and gun crime, of course, was then decreasing and gun homicide was decreasing. Uh, but in the last couple of years, there's been an uptick, uh, both in uh, su gun suicide and overall suicide and in gun crime and gun homicide. Now, a question you asked that I really want to get into is how do the United States fare as compared to other countries? Now, the gun lobby likes to compare us to uh, uh, other countries in the Americas, uh, like Guatemala, uh, like um, Honduras, uh, and we look very good compared to them. They have terrible, terrible uh, homicide problems. Uh, but when you compare us to the other high-income countries, our peer countries, when you're comparing apples to apples, uh, there are, I think now the OECD says now there are something like 30 or so uh, high-income countries. When we're compared with them, we look horrible. We are by far the worst. We have gun homicide rates, which are 30, 20, 30 times higher. We have uh, gun suicide rates, which are so much higher. We have um, uh, gun accident rates. So we're not even in the same ballpark as these other countries. Uh, and uh, citizens of, in, and so we're talking about uh, countries which have very strong gun laws, countries which have you know, fairly strong gun laws. They all have much stronger gun laws than we have. They all have uh, many fewer guns, particularly handguns and particularly military weapons than we have. And they all do so much better. Uh, I teach at a school of public health where uh, there's a lot of international students and they just can't understand why we allow uh, the incredible rates of killings of women and children and the elderly and, uh, uh, you know, blacks and whites. Uh, it's just uh, beyond the pale. Uh, for example, um, if you lined up all the uh, five to 14 year olds uh, in the United States uh, and in the rest of the developed countries or all the other high income countries, the English, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Italians, all the kids who have been killed with guns, uh, say five to 14 or pick an age, um, Typically, over 90% are U.S. kids who are dead. And if I could just, just follow up on that, I mean, I, I, is, is that reason for that largely have to do with the fact that we have so many more guns available in the U.S.? Or is it even if you were to account for the number of guns, there's more violence in the uh, United it, States? It looks, like, um, it looks like it's all the guns. It looks like it's the weak gun law. It's the number of guns the easy availability of guns and the weak gun laws, which allows anybody to get a gun legally and some, you know, basically legally, you just can buy a gun without a background check and just say, uh, the person doesn't even have to ask you whether or not you're a criminal. Uh, we, we've tried to look at is, how is the United States different than these other countries? And in, uh, as much as you can do, I mean, it's, it's not always easy, that we seem to have very similar crime rates and non-gun violent rates. So if you compare us to, all, again, all the other developed countries, all the other high-income countries, we, it's not like we have more alcohol problems. Uh, we don't uh, see, our kids don't seem to fight more often. We're an average country in terms of bullying. Uh, we seem not to be that different in any sort of measure that you can put on, except that we have lots of guns, we carry guns more often, and we use guns. Uh, just to give you a feeling, we, we, we um, have done studies now about police. And a police officer in the United States is much more likely to be killed 
than police officers in other countries. Uh, if you compare us to Germany, it's something like an average police officer in the United States is 30 times more likely to be killed on the job than a police officer in Germany. And not surprisingly, civilians in the United States are much more likely to be killed by police than civilians in Germany are likely to be killed by German police. And it's, again, about 30 times more likely. Uh, then we look at where are police getting killed in the United States? Why are they killed more often in some states than others? And the answer is there's one variable that really explains well the variations across states, and it's household gun ownership, uh, which correlates also very well with the permissiveness of gun laws. Uh, then we look at where are police killing civilians in the United States? Uh, and it turns out, why are they killing civilians a lot in some states and not so much in the other? It's where the guns are, because police are killing people because they are afraid they are going to get killed. Uh, when police kill somebody, it's not because they're protecting civilians, it's because they're largely protecting themselves. They're in dangerous situations. If you go to a domestic violence uh, issue, you're a police officer, uh, and you're called because of intimate partner violence. If there's no guns in the home, you're not going to get killed. If there's a gun in the house, there's a chance you could die. So, of course, you've been raising the issue of the fact that the United States has higher uh, levels of gun ownership. You've talked about policies and regulations that, um, that govern that. So I think one of the main questions that Matt and I had was about the impact of different types of firearm regulations. So maybe we could start by actually introducing, you know, what types of firearm regulations exist uh, on the books. Could you give okay. us a breakdown of that? Gee, there, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many types of regulations. Uh, there's a great website people can look at, uh, Law Center, LCAV, Law Center Against Violence, I think, which is part of the Gifford Group. And it goes and it's, it's all these lo great lawyers who have for every state and for the federal uh, have, have uh, looked at uh, tried to divide up all the different kinds of laws. They're really, you know, it's from simple laws like you, you can't fire a gun in the city um, to, um, you know, do you need training before you can get a gun? Uh, can you buy an assault weapon? Um, do you need a license to have a gun? Uh, and on and on and on. And the states, the United States, the federal, the federal level, we have very weak laws. Uh, uh, we have the Brady Bill, which says uh, you need a background check to buy a gun from a licensed dealer, but doesn't say that you can't buy a gun without a background check from an individual. And people do all the time. Uh, at the state level, there are some states which have very strong laws. Uh, Massachusetts, where I'm from, uh, that has strong laws. I think uh, we're the only state in the union that has a law, at least on the books, that says you have to store your guns properly, meaning uh, locked up uh, with the ammunition kept separately and unloaded. Uh, but uh, the other states don't have that. Uh, we're one of the few states in the union which have has licensing of gun owners. So you have to pass uh, not only a background check, but go to your local uh, police chief, and we have 351 towns, so we have 351 police chiefs, and uh, get them to give you a license. And they can look at more things because they're at the local level. They know if you've, if they've gone to your home continuously for domestic violence, even though you've never been convicted of a felony. Uh, but there are, uh, you know, we we had an assault weapons ban, uh, but there are all different. There's so many different kinds of. Uh, 
laws and then it's the punishment for certain kinds of gun crime and whether there are separate gun courts and, and so forth and so on. Uh, one of the things we in public health try to emphasize is that there's so many different things government can do other than just pass laws about, uh, because most, when most people think about um, gun uh, control, they typically think focus almost exclusively on saying something about the individual who owns a gun hmm. or who can get a gun and who can or what kind of gun you can do. And, and uh, the government does and can do so many other things. For example, the government uh, creates data systems and we have good data systems for some injuries like motor vehicles. So we know a lot and know what works and what doesn't work. And we have not very good data systems from a lot, a lot of other injuries. Um, we, uh, the government can also fund research. Uh, we have good funding at like, we know so much about in public health. Uh, we know so much because we have the National Institutes of Health, which funds a lot of things. So we know what's going on in the world and what works and what doesn't work. And uh, the, the, the gun lobby has been very successful at preventing uh, the Centers for Disease Control and to an extent the National Institutes of Health from funding research. So uh, we know very little uh, compared to what we should know for the size of the problem. Uh, uh, the government can um, write standards, safety standards. The government, I think, should be, can fund research and development, do its own research and development. Uh, the, um, the reason we have fire safe cigarettes in the United States to a large is because the national, uh, the government wrote good standards for these. So states could just pick them up. The government could write good standards for, uh, to make guns safer. They could write standards to uh, help uh, create um, the smart guns, which uh, uh, will prevent uh, unauthorized users from getting your gun and using it. Uh, they could use their power as a buyer. A big reason we have airbags in the United States is because the federal government, the General Services Administration, when the automobile companies were saying, no, 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 airbags aren't going to work, we can't use them, the GSA said, look, we'll, we'll buy 4,000 cars with airbags. And, mm -hmm. Ford, and Ford said, uh, okay, we'll, we'll sell 4,000 cars, we'll sell them. Uh, and suddenly we had real world data that airbags were really working and saving people's lives. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, so the government, can, all, all I'm trying to say is the government can do so many things. And then there's so many other groups besides government. The industry can do things. The, the retailers can do good things. The, uh, the gun trainers can do better things. The gun owners can do things. Uh, corporations, uh, foundations, uh, the clergy, hairdressers. Mm -hmm. uh, if we got together as a society and said we were all going to work together, we could actually make a big difference. So it sounds like there are quite a number of options available and, and some of which may have some data behind them and some of which, you know, maybe sort of thoughts that people yes. have on how we could deal with this problem. And I do want to get yes. into that, but, um, and talk about some of the more, you know, specific approaches that mm -hmm. are being used and what we know. And I think one of the ones that people are hearing a lot about in the news right now are the red flag laws right. um, that are aimed at 
taking yes. firearms away from people who might pose a threat to either themselves or somebody else. Do we do we know much about how effective those are and where, where are those being used and how they've been yeah. Yeah, tried the, out? The, the, there's been a couple number of states that have tried these. Uh, I think uh, Connecticut was one of the first. And so we've had a couple studies which suggest that this that these may be working well. Uh, there's a study that just came out of uh, California, which has a good data system and, and pretty strong laws. And that study is interesting because what they did, instead of trying to say, how has this reduced suicide, which is just so hard to, to figure out, uh, they just said, here are 21 instances where people have got the guns uh, from somebody who is clearly a risk. Uh, and aren't we all really glad that these 21 people don't have, and if you read about these people, you think, oh my goodness, we do not want these people to have guns. Uh, at least certainly at the time. And sometimes if somebody uh, is just going through a suicidal period, they shouldn't have a gun for a while. And, and then it's fine a year later for to have a gun. Yeah, maybe another one that you could talk about, uh, David, are stand your ground laws, which we've heard, yeah, heard a lot about right. in the news. Yeah. Um, I guess with it, the Trayvon Martin killing back in right. the Yes. So, so again, there have been uh, a number of studies uh, about that. that They seem to indicate that stand your ground laws increase homicide, uh, and, and which is not what we want. Uh, they, uh, a number of studies when they is, uh, are looking and, and the claim is uh, that uh, because of stand your ground laws, uh, people feel uh, that they're able to kill somebody else uh, without repercussions. And so th they've been used by uh, people who, you know, if you look at the situation, you think, no, they, they should not have used, used the gun. And it helps get people off who I think in other states would be uh, put in jail for uh, killings or at least shootings. Uh, again, so the Rand um, Corporation uh, last year uh, looked at, I think, I don't know, say 70 studies, which were tried to evaluate all the laws. And, and uh, what they said was, uh, there was virtually no, not, no individual law that they could say with high certainty was effective. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't studies, but they had a fairly high bar. Uh, it's, it's very hard to figure out what an individual law's effect is because Usually the laws aren't very massive or strong. They're just going to have a little effect. And so many other things are happening. It's not a randomized control trial. We're controlling everything else. The whole world is changing. And so what researchers have to do is try to figure out um, what the counterfactual would have been. What would the world have been like if we didn't have the stand your ground law, if we, if, if, if we didn't have the red flag law? And that's really, really difficult to do. Uh, they try to have controls, but the controls are never actual exact controls. Uh, I would say a couple things. One, I think the evidence is overwhelming, or is incredibly strong that places, all other things equal, places with strong gun laws do much better in terms of gun violence, gun homicide, gun suicide than states with weak laws. Uh, and But to figure out the individual law, one of the problems in, in this area uh, and you'll see I often refer back to uh, motor vehicles because that's an area where we've had a lot of success and know a lot, uh, is that we don't have as good theories 
of what's happening and why, and we don't have as good data to really track the causality. So too many times in the, um, uh, when we're trying to do these studies, what happens is you just say, okay, here's the law, what's the effect on overall homicide? And that would be like in, in the motor vehicle area if, if, say, we introduced collapsible steering columns into cars, which we did. And you said, well, what's the effect on overall transportation deaths? And the answer is, well, you know, it's not, these, these laws have no effect on um, airplane crashes. They have no effect on most motor vehicle issues. They, have no, they don't protect pedestrians. They don't protect motorcyclists. They don't protect um, bicyclists. Uh, they don't protect pedestrians. Uh, they don't protect you in rollovers and side-end collisions. But what researchers in motor vehicles are able to do is say, all right, let's look at head-on collisions. And we know the cars with these collapsible steering columns, without the collapsible steering columns, we know they're supposed to protect your chest. How, what's happened with chest injuries in these things, with deaths due to chest injuries? And you can say, gee, this is really reduced you know, chest injuries by 40% and deaths to uh, motorists, not to all motorists, but to, but to the driver by you know, 20%. But it's really hard to be able to say for the bigger picture where there's just so much noise. Um, and and in the, so in the motor vehicle area, I mean, in the gun area, uh, uh, something like stand your ground laws, is that going to affect everybody? It just affects people in some areas. Uh, we, we really need to narrow down and look at the chain of causation. But again, a big problem has been uh, not always that isn't uh, good data, but their research funding has been so limited that you haven't had nearly enough studies to try to do a really good job to understand what's happening. And, and, and while you're on that subject, if uh, could just say a little bit more, why you mentioned earlier that, that there isn't uh, a lot of, of, you know, good high quality research out there because in part, because there hasn't been enough funding. And I'm curious, can you, can you tell us a little bit of the history there as to why? Sure. sure. So you have to recognize that uh, the Centers for Disease Control was created after World War II as the Communicable Disease Center, focusing on malaria in the South, really, and then uh, infectious diseases. And when they fell, uh, they looking, what else could they do? And they did chronic diseases. And so they changed their name from Communicable Disease Center to Centers for Disease Control. Uh, and then when they did the chronic diseases, they did uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, I'm sorry. And then in the 80s, they started doing injuries. And so it really wasn't until the late 80s that there was any money at the CDC for injury research. And so uh, at that time, firearm injuries were the second leading cause of injury death after motor vehicles. And so CDC started putting a little money into that. And then came in the, uh, the Gingrich revolution uh, and the Republicans took over the house and they did the bidding of the National Rifle Association who really disliked that the first couple studies coming out was the CDC's funding said, which is true, that a gun in the home was not a safety device, but it increased the risk for the family. And again, there were only two studies, but it wasn't proving it, but the evidence was very suggestive. Uh, and so they hauled the CDC, the Appropriations Committee hauled CDC uh, in and said, you know, we don't like this. Um, uh, they basically tried to eliminate uh, the entire research center at CDC. 
Uh, they couldn't do that, so they tried then to eliminate, write a law saying you cannot do any funding for gun research. They couldn't quite do that, but they asked CDC, how much money are you spending in the gun area? And CDC said $2.6 million, which is nothing if you know anything about research. Mm -hmm. So they immediately cut $2.6 million from the CDC budget which was a shot across the bow. And then when CDC you know, funded research, which had been funded, you know, had already been funded, came out saying more things that guns were not this wonderful thing, which was making us a, a, a more healthy society, uh, they got beaten up again and it became very clear that if they did anything, um, they were gonna get uh, loose funding. And then the Dickey Amendment just was a, a symbol and it said, uh, no, no CDC money or and then eventually NIH money could ever be used f to promote gun control. Now, you and I know that as a researcher with, with federal funding, you can never advocate for you know, something, a legislative, that's not what you do. So the, the law didn't say anything different, but it was just, a, again, a symbol that says, watch out. And CDC since then funds nothing. Uh, CDC researchers uh, are, are afraid to say the word guns. I go to conferences. They refuse to say the word guns and firearms. I've talked to friends of mine at CDC, and if we ever, I ever mentioned guns, uh, they have said, uh, wait a second, let me call you back. And they'll go outside the building into the parking lot and call me back from their cell phones because they are so afraid of saying the word guns. Uh, you notice uh, after every mass shootings, these horrendous shootings. What does our lead public health agency say? What does the Surgeon General say? Nothing. Nothing. Don't hear anything. What, what does the what does the head of the CDC say? Nothing. Why? Because they know. Uh, and uh, and and it's it's incredibly sad. So we don't know. You know, it's not like we know nothing, but we know a tenth as much as we should know. So when I talk to reporters, I can tell them a variety of things, but it, once they start scratching, I say, we don't know. J just one more, just you know, last year, I think we did the very first peer-reviewed journal article focusing on gun theft. There are something like 350,000 guns a year stolen in the United States. We know virtually nothing about the who, what, why, when, and where, and how. And if you wanna make a difference there, you, you need to know something. Uh, there's, I don't think there's ever been an article, a peer-reviewed journal article written about open carry. What's mm -hmm. the effect? Zero mm -hmm. articles. Uh, uh, a little over a year ago, we wrote, I think, the first peer-reviewed journal article which focused on gun training. Um, over 60% of U.S. citizens, of uh, U.S. gun owners have been trained. We know nothing about, you know, we know so little about what the training should teach, what it is teaching, what effect it has, whether uh, laws like in Massachusetts require gun training, whether that has any good effect at all or no, no effect, or whether people remember anything they learned in gun training, nothing. Wow. I can't, you know, it's interesting because as a, as a public health professional, I can't think of any other uh, disease for which we have so little information about that this is a disease, it's a, it's a it's an, uh, public health issue, but I can't think of any other public health issue for which we just don't have the, the baseline information that we would need to actually be able to do something. Yeah, I, well, I always say that public health is underfunded relative to medicine. Within public health, injuries are very underfunded. So like, we also know very little about drownings and falls. To, 
Uh, and within the injury area, compared to the size of the problem, firearms are by far the most underfunded. Uh, there is a, an article, I think, in JAMA uh, a year or two ago, and it just said, compared to uh, how many people are dying, uh, here's like, like to take the 10 leading causes of death out of 15, how much money is being spent on each, how many journal articles are being written. And basically, uh, you would expect well over 10 times more funding for guns and 10 times as many peer-reviewed journal articles. So David, of course, you're saying that there's no coincidence that there's limited research in the U.S. context on the impact of these different laws. Is there anything that we can infer from other countries that have? Well, here's what we can infer is, is that two things. One is that uh, all the other developed, all the other high income countries have uh, much stronger gun laws, every one of them, and they all have many fewer guns. And when I say that, they have many fewer handguns, which is the big, big problem. Uh, and of course, they have many fewer military type weapons. Uh, and they have much, 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 much fewer uh, violent deaths, in, especially gun deaths. Uh, and if you look within the United States, uh, the states which you compare apples to apples, you know, urban states to urban states and so forth, the states which do the best are the states with fewer guns and stronger laws. And uh, so a place like Massachusetts, we have very strong laws. Uh, we're an urban state, but we typically have uh, the lowest rates of gun death uh, in the country. And we do even better if only uh, New Hampshire and Maine and some other states had stronger laws because basically our criminals get their guns not from Massachusetts, but they're trafficked in. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, this gets me to a, a, another issue, which I'm quite uh, interested in, which is it's a, it's a, given what you've said to us so far about the limited amount of research available to us, and given that, you know, many of the studies that we do have are studies of policies, which as you point out, it's hard to know the counterfactual, as you say, what would have happened if we had done things differently. And so the, the evidence isn't always the strongest in this case. And, and whenever there is a mass shooting, it seems that people get very energized. Uh, if you read social media, you'll see people arguing both sides with the limited information available to us. Um, and so I, you were just mentioning Massachusetts and New Hampshire. I was looking at social media after the last mass shooting and the argument being made from the pro-gun side was that um, New Hampshire has very very uh, uh, loose gun laws and has really very little problem. And I don't know whether there's any truth to that, but it seems to me that there's a lot of uh, information and misinformation out there. And I'm wondering how yeah. you deal with that. Yeah, so, you know, certain things we do know, like the mass shootings, we know the United States is incredibly disproportionately affected by mass shootings, uh, again, because it's so easy to get guns, I think. Uh, we know that, again, our kids aren't any different than kids in these other countries, as far as we can tell, and yet our kids use guns. And what guns do is make vi you know, violent interactions much more lethal. Uh, let me talk about one area where we have done a, a lot of research and really know, and, I, and, and that's about suicide. So there are more gun suicides than gun homicides in the United States. Uh, even though there's more shootings uh, in terms of uh, 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 interpersonal shootings, because a lot of people don't die uh, in, you know, when somebody shoots another person. But uh, in terms of death, uh, there's always a lot more suicides. And one of the things we know for sure 
is that a gun in the home increases the risk for suicide, something like threefold for everybody in the household. Now that doesn't mean that, oh, I have a gun in my household and I'm gonna, somebody's gonna die of a suicide. It basically means something like over the next 40 years, uh, if there was a one half percent that somebody in the home would die of a suicide, now there's one and a half percent, which doesn't seem like a lot, but you know, three, threefold, threefold is a lot. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good studies there's been more than a dozen case control studies, which have all shown the same thing. There are all these ecological studies, uh, you know, which, which states do really badly in terms of suicide in New England. And I can tell you, it's the three states with a lot of guns, uh, because across the United States, the non-gun suicide rate is pretty constant. Uh, but the gun suicide rate changes a lot with, with the guns. And so Vermont, uh, uh, Maine, New Hampshire have a lot of gun suicides. Uh, if you attempt suicide with a gun, it's probably 90% likely you'll die. If you attempt suicide with the most common means, which is taking 100 pills, there's about 2 to 3% chance you'll die. Okay. Uh, and uh, there's a whole lot of reason to, to, you know, psychological reasons to understand why this matters so much. Because people aren't carefully planning their suicides. You wake up, things are just so black, you can't do anything. Um, and it's why we have suicide watches in prison. So, you know, you can get uh, So we've done a lot of work trying to make sure that the uh, suicide experts understand this. And I think now they do. Uh, whereas 20, 15, 20 years ago, they, they just thought it was all mental health. Whereas, you know, most of the great success stories in suicide prevention, uh, I would argue, have nothing to do with mental health. They have everything to do with the means of suicide. Uh, Sri Lanka, for example, used to lead the, the, the world in suicides, and there the people drank liquid pesticides, which were awful. And the government decided to get rid of the most lethal pesticides. And so the people still drink the pesticides, but now they don't die. Hmm. Um, same way in England. Uh, in the 50s, everyone, most people uh, would commit suicide sticking their heads in the oven. It's how Sylvia Plath died. It's painless. It's um, non-disfiguring. Uh, and then the, uh, inadvertently, uh, the, the carbon, carbon monoxide in the, in the stoves were changed to basically zero. So people still put their heads in the oven and then after a while, <laughs> they take their heads out and go about their business because nothing was happening. And so what I want to talk about though is one of the things we're doing is working with gunners, finding common ground. And the first area is in the suicide area. And my colleague, Kathy Barber is doing such an incredible job working with gun shops uh, and now with gun trainers. Um, uh, uh, eight years ago, gun shops never talked about suicide, wouldn't even. Uh, now in 20 states, gun shops are trying to play their role in trying to reduce suicide. Uh, a woman comes into your shop, says, you know, I want a gun, what kind? I don't care, any kind's good. Okay, how about this, fine. Uh, how many bullets do you want? One's enough. Uh, you don't need to sell the gun. Uh, and it's not gonna make a huge pro difference, but it makes a little difference. Uh, in the uh, gun trainers, gun trainers never talked about suicide. Kathy went to Utah, which is the uh, concealed carry gun training capital of the world, uh, a very red state. And she met with all these uh, concealed carry trainers and she's so sweet and she's, always approaches people as part of the solution and not part of the problem. And she said to them, now you're doing such a great job trying to reduce unintentional gun death. 
But did you know that in Utah, for every unintentional gun death, there are 85 gun suicides, 85 to one. And they said, we didn't know this. Is that really right? We can't believe that. And she said, you know, raise your hand if you know someone who unintentionally killed themselves with, uh, got killed with a gun. And a few hands go up. Raise your hand if you know someone who committed suicide with a gun. And every hand goes up because these are the people at high risk and they're all their friends, uh, these, you know, older white guys with guns. Uh, and she said, um, can, can we do something about this? What, what if we work together to create a module about gun suicide? Would you use it in your classes? And they said, well, let's see. And she created this module and they love it. They think it's the greatest thing. Uh, and then she said, can we, how can we get all the gun trainers to use this? And they thought about it and they said, oh, that's gonna be hard to convince everybody. We know everybody in the state legislature, we'll just make it mandatory. So now in Utah, this incredibly red state, it's mandatory that the, you teach a concealed carry class, you have to have a module about suicide prevention. And the module, which they love, it's nothing to do with government. It's the friends don't let friends drive approach. So basically it says, your friend's going through a bad patch. He's getting a divorce, he's drinking, he's talking crazy. It's your responsibility as a friend, and he should know it's your responsibility to, and these are their words, babysit the gun for a while until things get better. He gets a new girlfriend, then he gets the gun back. So this is like a red flag, except it's not yes. with uh, any police intervention. That's right. That's exactly the same thing. And they love it. They think it's great. Uh, and then they said, we really want to know more about the suicide stuff, because they know all about guns, but they know nothing about statistics and public health, whatever. So they got the state legislature to do a study, to fund a study on suicide in Utah. And they gave the money to us at the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. And they also did something incredible, which is they just got the state legislature to say, everybody has to work together on this. We have to allow all this merger of data. So we have all this data about every suicide and then all the health records of all these people which doctors did they see? Did they have mental health problems or not? Most didn't uh, and so forth. Then we got, uh, did they have a concealed carry license or not at the time they died? Could they have passed a background check the day they died? Who, where, where was the gun originally purchased? Was it purchased by them or one person in their family or was they somehow got the gun illegally or how did they get the gun? Uh, and so it really shows too that uh, on issues you can get, you know, people to work together to share information. And we've, we've learning so much uh, about this. And now we're trying to figure out ways to get uh, the gunners because they're, they care about safety. They care about their family. Uh, they're very smart, uh, but you know, trying to get them uh, on the side of uh, safety because they're already on that side, uh, but in trying to reduce uh, problems because uh, one thing we're trying to be, like to be in working with them on is, uh, Every gun in the United States begins as a legal gun bought by someone who can pass a background check and then clearly they get into the hands of people everyone thinks shouldn't have those guns. And how does this happen and how can we, what, is it, what are the best ways to prevent this from happening? Um, so we are very excited because there really are ways to bring people together, which is, you know, in the best spirit of public health and, and uh, seems to make the most difference. So in terms of engaging the community and the public, including gun owners, yes, uh, as being part of this solution, 
Can yeah. you say a bit more about public support for these different types of interventions? Of yeah. Course yeah. That. So, so in, you mentioned private guns, public health. I had, when I wrote that, I had, I don't know, 30 different kinds of policies that the government could do. Uh, and uh, the huge majority of Americans were for every one of those policies. The majority of gun owners were for almost all those policies. Uh, and we just don't get them. So if you ask people, should we have background checks, universal background checks, 90% of everybody, you know, 88% of gun owners say, yes, we should do that. No, we just don't get them. Um, so there are a lot of things that, that people uh, would like. People would like uh, guns where uh, if you drop them, they didn't go off. Uh, there's a lot of things that um, uh, government uh, can do to, to make a difference that the majority of people uh, are in favor of. But somehow uh, it, it doesn't happen under our current system. Um, I wanted to follow up on something that you said a little bit before. You said uh, that we used to think that a lot of gun violence had to do with mental health and that our opinions on that are changing. And I'm yeah. particularly curious about that one because it is certainly an area every time there's a mass shooting that sure. we hear about yeah. mental health and the role of mental health. Right. And I'm curious what we what we actually know about the role of mental health in both right. obviously suicides, but also in, in homicides and, yeah. and mass shootings, but also whether there's any evidence that there are effective programs for dealing with both of those problems together. Right. So, so the big, you know, the big reason this comes up is because I think uh, the gun advocates want to change the subject away from guns. That's the, the real reasons. And so if they're not talking about mental health, they're talking about violent video games and I'm not for violent video games. And I think we don't spend nearly enough on mental health, but uh, in general, uh, people with mental health problems are uh, somewhat more likely to be victims of, uh, assaults and homicide than to be perpetrators. Uh, most homicides, the huge majority of homicides are not committed by people who would pass any, uh, you know, any that anybody would say has, uh, is, has serious documented mental health problems unless you're willing to say that half of Americans have mental health problems. Uh, the type, there are a few uh, uh, diagnoses which are dangerous. And, and one turns out interesting to be is alcohol problems, <laughs> which, is, which is a risk which factor so for common. every injury. Yeah, which is so common as a risk factor for any injury. Uh, and, but that's not what's, so, you know, the, the kind of thing pe people think that, you know, if you kill, um, you know, 20 people in a mass shooting, you must be crazy. And the answer is, well, you're certainly not crazy, not necessarily crazy in a mental health uh, certifiable way at all. Yeah, it's an uh, interesting phenomenon. I, I think it, it gets me back to one of the earlier podcasts uh, about consequentialism, where you know we talk about how for a lot of a lot of challenges in public health, we take a very reductionist view. So when it comes to lung cancer, we talk about smoking, but somehow when it comes to gun violence, we kind of avoid the most right. proximal cause and right. we kind of go towards everything else, uh, including mental health, including video games, uh, right. but not really. The and, most and yeah, and all those things should matter. And, and, you know, one of the things we always talk about in injury prevention is the motor vehicle example, where um, we've had huge successes in motor vehicle, reducing motor vehicle injury. But what people would say, what the automobile industry would say in the, in the 1950s is something which is true, that if people never made mistakes when they're driving, never made a mistake, there'd hardly be any motor vehicle crashes. And if nobody ever broke the law, nobody ever sped, nobody ever drove drunk, um, nobody ever ran a red light, there'd be 
we could eliminate over half the deaths. And that's always true, but it really wasn't until public health physicians asked a different question, not who is the proximate cause of the injury, but uh, what caused the injury? And uh, people were, it was clear people were being speared by the steering columns, which didn't collapse. They were being uh, thrown from the car because there were no airbags and seat belts. They were, uh, faces were lacerated because the windows were not made of safety glass. Uh, they, when they went off the road, they would hit lampposts, which were planted right along the sides of roads. And public health physicians said, can't we do something about the roads and the highways and the um, emergency medical system? And you fast forward you know, uh, 60 years and motor vehicle deaths per mile driven have fallen something like 85 to 90%. Incredible success story. Uh, and nobody thinks drivers are any better. And what you learn in injury prevention is that for any particular injury, there are probably a dozen things that if they hadn't have happened, the injury wouldn't have occurred. And what you're looking for is the most cost-effective ways. Hmm. Uh, and it's no, there's no question, we could have as many guns as we want. We could have hand grenades lying all over if people were saints all the time, never made mistakes, never did anything bad, um, uh, never were careless, never got drunk, never got angry, you know, in other words, if they weren't human beings, mm -hmm. um, and, and it wouldn't matter. So how can we, you know, oh, you know, I, I, I leave TNT lying around for kids. If, they're, if they never, you know, are, are mischievous, if they're never, in other words, if they're not children, there's no problem. Um, and, and if uh, no one had, no one was ever felt depressed, no one ever felt blue, we wouldn't, would, wouldn't matter that guns were around. Uh, for suicide because yeah. no one would be suicidal. But if you want to reduce suicide, the most cost-effective way is not trying to make everybody um, always happy, <laughs> whatever, all the time. It's too hard in the same way. It's too hard to make everybody a perfect driver 100% of the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and the easy way, and we can just look at the states which have done better, the developed other, every other country in the developed world which is better, and they said, Let's look at the easy thing to do, which was do something about guns. And it's one of the other responses that I often hear uh, about trying to tackle this problem from, say, a legal standpoint or by adding more laws mm -hmm. is that, you know, it's, uh, you know, you don't, you, you don't want to have more laws because it's the, the criminals who aren't going to follow the <laughs> laws. Uh, it seems to me that misses the point that, that so much of the problems with gun violence aren't, uh, they're suicides, but even in the case of, of, um, of, of violent actions, uh, homicides and, and, and mass shootings, that, that certainly some of those could actually be prevented if people just didn't have access to guns. We don't yeah. make things, you know, we don't, there are people who commit murder, but we don't allow murder to be legal. Right. Yeah, the, the, I mean, you could say that for any law. The people yeah. who break the laws are the people who are criminals. I mean, that, you know, but, but what you want to do, one of the things, uh, my understanding is what we did is after the Oklahoma City bombings, we made it a lot harder for people to get those explosives types. Uh, and so, for example, then when there was the marathon bombers and bombings in Boston, you had these two very smart guy, kids uh, and they're only able to kill a couple of people rather than in this huge, huge gathering. Why? Because they couldn't get the right stuff to kill lots and lots. Guns do not cause crime. Guns do not cause, you know, pe people to be depressed. What guns do is they make situations more lethal. 
they, they make violent interactions more lethal. That's, that's what they do. And so you want to say, you know, do we want to have uh, hand grenades uh, for everybody? And he said, no, you don't. Uh, you know, if you want uh, something, if you really think you need something for self-defense in the home, there are a lot better things to use than um, handguns, which are so dangerous for the household. And, and also so dangerous for the community, not just your own household, but for other households in the community. So one country that we know has taken pretty dramatic action, uh, David, after a mass shooting was Australia back in yes. the 1990s. Um, yeah. So do we, have, do we have good evidence for impacts well, on- Well, okay, again, it's so hard to say, you know, what causes what, but here's what happened. It, they, the, first, they had this one big mass shooting in Tasmania. Then a key thing was that the conservative prime minister said enough's enough, even though I might lose election for this, but we're gonna do something. They bought back all these guns. Uh, the, I think the evidence, you, you couldn't ask for any stronger evidence in the sense of what happened but it may not be convincing to people. And that is uh, suicides, uh, gun suicides went way down, gun homicides went way down, uh, but they were never huge in Australia. Australia was not quite the gun culture like we have. Yeah. Uh, and they went down faster than they had in the past. There's this two year period where they bought up lots of guns and they increased the gun laws. Uh, and you can see a change in the, in the, in the slopes of the lines. Uh, the, the uh, changes in terms of gun homicide, gun suicide, were the largest in the places where most, most of the guns were bought up. Uh, and then the whole reason, a big reason for doing it was to stop mass shootings and there weren't any mass shootings for the next 18 years or something, at zero. So, you know, if anybody had said when they passed the law that this is what's gonna hold in the future, everyone would have said that would be so great. That would be, but then, uh, when you look at it, I, I mean, I look at it and I think the evidence is very strong because this is the best that could have happened. Uh, and, but you, if you, you know, some people try to finagle the numbers and say, oh, suicide and homicide are already going down a little bit. And for some reason, we, we their assumption is would have continued going down forever. Mm. And he says, well, why do you think, where's the, why, why is that? Well, that's just the trend. But wasn't like that four years before. Well, it's the new trend that's going down forever. And the answer is, I, I don't buy that. Uh, so, so I think the evidence is, is you know, uh, is very strong. But it, again, you couldn't get any stronger evidence. And and I think that's as you get to that's why it's so difficult to to generate really convincing evidence is because. Uh, you know, we don't, as you say, we don't do randomized trials where we would, you know, randomize some people to, to not have guns and whatever right. it is you want to do. Right. We only have these sort of policy level interventions that makes it really, really challenging to, to uh, estimate the effects of. Right. Um, but but I, would, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the, the stuff we know about suicide is overwhelming. And, and it's, what's sad about it is that, even though we've been trying to get the message now to physicians, most physicians don't understand it. They still have this bizarre belief, you know, if someone wants to commit suicide, they will. And the answer is, well, maybe they'll try, but they're not gonna, you know, if you live, if you live way out in the suburbs and you have no guns and how are you gonna commit suicide? And you're gonna, I don't know, drive into Boston and try to jump off the, the Prudential and you get up there and you find out you can't jump off. And so, I don't know, then you go shopping or something. I mean, it's, things change. Uh, what, what was uh, so many people who 
uh, have, there have been these studies of nearly lethal suicides where people did something really, you know, they jumped in front of a bus and got hit and they thought they shot themselves in the head and they thought they would die and they didn't. And then they, people that talked to them and followed them and, and you know, over, over 20 years later, uh, over 90% of them haven't, haven't died from suicide. Uh, they are so happy to, most of them are so happy to be alive. Uh, and when you asked how you're, you're planning, you know, over half of them said, uh, you know, we, we had less, about a quarter say, we planned this for five minutes. And the other and the, and a half say it was less than an hour between when we decided to commit suicide and we did something. Mm. And so what's, what's around is what you do. Uh, for us, now there are always, you know, this 85 year old whose wife just died and he has terminal cancer and he's in pain and he's been planning this. That's a different ball of wax, but that's not the common suicide. So for someone who's worked on this issue for a long time, yes. David, I mean, there's both, of course, we've talked about the evidence, some of the shortcomings, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. under not ideal circumstances, there's growing evidence for the impact of some of these regulations, both yes. in the U.S. and other places. There's public support for a lot of these actions, but yes. yet we don't see a lot of action. That's true. Yep. That's yes, yes, and yes. What, what kind of message true. do you have in that case? What do you well, advise? Okay. So... Uh, uh, Ten years ago, I wrote this book called While We Were Sleeping. It's uh, 64 documented successes about how the world's been made safer in terms of public health, real success stories in public health. And, and all of those, it took a much longer time than you'd hope. There was always opposition about things like, why, how could people be against these simple, easy, nice changes? But they were. Uh, almost all of them, uh, data and research mattered, which I love because that's what I do. Uh, and... Uh, in all of them, there was a tipping point. Something finally tipped, and even though people had always been for it, there had been this strong opposition, and it eventually tipped. And outside of motive, outside of injury, you see that in, in tobacco in the United States, where you know, 25 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, you'd go to a conference and people would be smoking. Uh, you, I actually saw this in motor vehicles. Uh, uh, in the 80s, uh, one of the premier injury researchers uh, said, uh, you know, we'll never have seatbelt laws in the United States. We'll never get more than 20% you know, seatbelt use ever. And then suddenly we have 90% seatbelt use. Uh, things can change uh, and they can change and, and tip rapidly. And uh, you never know exactly when it's going to happen. Uh, you know, what, one of the things I think you know, right now is we have a political party which is aligned with the gun lobby, which is which is very sad um, because the gun lobby, you know, only represents, uh, you know, I don't know, four four million people, which is a lot, but out of uh, two hundred eighty million, two hundred sixty million adults, it's not that much. And a lot of people in the gun lobby, when you survey them, are for a lot of the reasonable things. But so things can change. And, and there's a lot of movement in the last couple of years that maybe things will be changing. Well, I think that's uh, on a positive note that I think is the perfect place to, to end on. So why don't, we, why don't we leave things there? And I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Hemingway, for joining us on this episode. And I also want to thank Dr. Nandi for leading the conversation. We'd also like to thank Sue Bevan for producing the show. And before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I would strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. 
Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which you'll uh, know that is upcoming this year in Boston in June. It also gets you access to the SER library, which you can use to access some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. That's epiresearch.org. We appreciate you listening, and we will be back with another episode soon.